<clears throat> okay, tonight, um, I don't make any promises, but I think tonight we're going to uh, complete this kind of brief overview on understanding the distinction between the soul and spirit. <clears throat> and um, this is... Uh, and this is one of those things that, uh, and I, I, and I think I'm thinking about Faye in this regard because I remember back, I don't know, back a few months ago when we were talking about Paul and that he taught every day in Ephesus for about three years. <laughs> I just remember Faye's coming. What you teaching all that time? And I'm thinking, I think of all kinds of stuff to teach in that time. And this is one of those things because I found. I'm not making fun. I'm just saying that that's a it's a it's a question that I think a lot of people would ask. What would you teach in all that time? I mean, especially if you're Paul, and especially if he really was teaching not for an hour a day, but for three or four hours a day, which there's some indication that's what he was doing. <clears throat> but I found several times that I've had uh, individuals that, as you've gone over this, they, they kind of read in the Bible and they see soul and spirit, and they're going, "Oh, okay, that's interesting." And what does that mean? Uh, and they don't appreciate. I grew up in a church where we were taught we were spirit, soul, and body. Okay, so I'm a champion for being a trichotomist. Yeah, I'll stand for that. But what does that mean on a practical level? I couldn't have told you. I could not have told you to save my life growing up. It wasn't actually until I went to seminary that I understood some of it. Uh, and uh, I understood a little bit before I went to seminary from some studies I was had been involved in before we went out. But I would say even some of that, even having gone through seminary, some of us after we came here and you just keep working that stuff. I'm always reminded the theology professor that we had in seminary, he tells, says to us when, I, when I'm, we're graduating, just remember all we've been, done for you over the last three weeks, three years, excuse me, seminary is three years, not three weeks. Uh, the only thing we've done in the last three years is giving you a framework of truth. Only a framework. You're going to have to build on that. What? <laughs> yeah. And so, but this is one of those topics. And I think the more I've understood this, the more it has been helpful for me to understand this. So as we've been talking about spirit and soul, how would we say, what do we primarily do with the soul? If somebody, if you're talking to somebody on the street, don't use fancy technical language. Keep it simple. Somebody, a brand new believer that doesn't read the spirit, soul, and body. What is that? They just read it here in First Thessalonians. What would you tell them? You do with the spirit. With the, with the spirit. Did I say soul? I'm sorry. Okay. What would you What would you tell them you do with the spirit? What? Yeah. You think rationally. Okay. You think rationally. Okay. So what do you do with the soul? You feel. You feel. Rationally means. Um, okay. I'd say think. Yeah, really yeah. So you're not you're not thinking with your feelings. Sometimes we think with our feelings, and uh, we'd ask a person, "Why do?" You, and Peggy, my wife, will do this to me. And she goes, "What should we do in this situation?" And I'll say, "Oh, we'll do that." And she goes, "Now she wants a reason. Why? Why, why do you want to do that?" And I'm like, oh, "I don't know. Sounds like a good thing to do." <laughs> She wants a reason. Give me a reason. Well, why? And I'm like, because mm, I kind of feel like doing that. <laughs> I, can't, I don't, can't give you a good reason. It just sounds like fun. We'll go and do that thing or something or it's, you know, whatever it is. And so sometimes we do think we make choices sometimes with what appeals to us. I mean, she went over and got a plate and there were several of us that had a second cheese zombie tonight. Did we do that because rationally? Having a second cheese zombie was the sensible, rational thing to do. No, it's because that thing tastes good. Baked bread with cheese in it? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you have a second on that? So. You can't bring food in yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a good place where we think with our soul. So we think with our soul, we think with the spirit. Uh, the, the one other way I would describe the distinction is with your spirit, you think objectively. That is, you don't have to be touching and actively engaged in this so that you got all this connection with exactly what's going on. It's like, these are the facts. These are the facts. I can list these are the facts, which is, I think, sometimes what, my, what Peggy's asking for when she says, why that? Why are we going to choose that? She's kind of asking me to give her some good facts on why we should do that. But we also have the soul, and the soul is where we think 
subjectively. Subjectively means that coffee's hot, so I can think about, well, I don't want to dump, I don't want to rest that cup on my leg right now because it'll hurt. And I don't want, you know, so there's things you're going to do like that. Um, I was sopping wet this morning and I needed to turn a light on because I couldn't read a shampoo bottle in the bathroom without my glasses. And so I reached out and I'm reaching across to grab the light switch and I'm thinking, I'm standing kind of in the shower reaching across. This is a, a shock. That's an objective thing. I've never gotten a shock ever doing that, but I don't want to, see? So that was an objective that was an objective thing that I was thinking about because subjectively, I don't know what it's like to get a shock uh, in that way. So soul, you feel stuff. Your soul, you feel stuff. You've gotten a shock, you've done something, you don't ever want to do that again. Uh, spirit, you can think objectively. These are the facts. I know when you're wet and you touch something electrical, you can get a shock. Never had it happen, but I know the fact. So that's spirit, this is soul. What are we going to feed into the spirit as a Christian that's going to affect us in using the spirit? In Christ's truth. In Christ's truth. That's one of the things that you're going to be plugging in there. Anything else? The Bible. The Bible, yeah. The Bible as a whole. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff all the way through here that we can plug into our spiritual thinking. Case in point. In the book of Daniel, you have Daniel's three friends. We don't know where Daniel is at this time, but he's got these three friends and they won't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's giant 70-foot image. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar tell him he's going to do? He's going to cook them. He's going to throw them in the furnace unless they bow down. He's going to give them a chance to bow down. What do they say? This is... From a human point of view, and I think they're rational about this, how did they respond to his to his statement? Does anybody remember? Yeah. Our God will deliver us. Our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, see, so they're rational that they know their God is able to deliver them. Even if God doesn't, they're still not going to bow down. If they did it on a sensory level, they'd go, there's a good chance that that furnace is pretty hot. They probably touched something hot, probably burns. They're probably thinking, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So if they saw, thought clearly with that part of them that's subjective, they may, they may have made an irrational decision and bowed down to the image. Okay. So there's a, an example. So let's, I want to look at some examples. Let's go to Luke. We're going to look at some examples of some ways that the soul acts. And so in Luke... <clears throat> chapter 2, lost my place on my notes, put them down here maybe. Luke chapter 2, and when you get there, go to verse 35. This is Joseph and Mary. They're taking Jesus at eight days of age, presenting him at the temple. Read in verse 34. So everybody follow along, beginning with verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this one is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. A sword will pierce even your own soul. And we'll just stop there. A sword will pierce even to your own soul. He's, who's he talking to, by the way, when he says your own soul? Mary. Okay, he says piercing. To, yeah, so he's talking to Mary here. What's going to happen that's going to cause a sword to pierce Mary's soul? Yeah, the death of, of who? Her son. Yeah. He may be the son of God that's come down here as a man, but it was, that was her boy. <laughs> that was her boy. That was, you think that was an easy thing? And she was there at the cross, remember? Because that's what, of the seven things that Jesus says from the cross, one of them had to do with his mother. He looks at John, he says, Woman, or he says, woman, behold your son. And I probably got it backwards. And he says, and to, says to John, behold your mother. In other words, he turns the care of his mother over to not one of his brothers, <laughs> but to one of his disciples in that way. So can we, all, can we all relate to that? If you had to watch your child suffer and die, would it be like being run through with a, with a sword? Yeah, it would hurt horribly. Um, 
Let's turn to John chapter 12. What's that last part of that verse? Oh, I probably can't answer that for you, but we'll see. To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think that, I think that is at the end that there's a lot of people that were going to look religious, but Christ being put on the cross, the very thing that was going to cause her torment, other people were going to relish in that. Such as the leaders, they're going to be, they're going to be like, "Hey, he saved others. Let him save himself." You know, you're the great healer. Take care of yourself. And so, they, what you saw was these people. They had real. They had no real compassion, and they have no compassion for his mother while she's standing there being tormented by the death of her son. Uh, in that same kind, that's the way I would understand that. Thank you. Does anybody else have anything else to bring to that? Let's go to John chapter 12. John 12. When you get to John 12, find verse 27. When you talk about... This is a verse. This is a verse you need to mark. Ben's probably already done this, but if you haven't, if if you don't do what Ben's done, you need to do what Ben does in your Bible. You need to mark this verse alongside the the next verse we're going to look at, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because when Jesus is in the Garden and he asks for the cup to pass, he's not asking to not die. That makes. Do you realize when people say Jesus is there pleading with the Father not to die? That's making him a coward. There have been lots of brave men that have faced their deaths on the battlefield and in all kinds of other situations doing something on behalf of other people. Jesus was not a coward. Okay, But having said that, it does say in John 12, 27, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? In other words, should I ask the Father, save me from this hour? It's for this very purpose that I came to this hour. In other words... Why would I ask the Father to save me from something that the, this is the very reason I showed up? I didn't make any sense. I came to do this, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to do that. So the very fact that he asks that or makes that statement there, that's question couched in a statement, is telling you when he's in the garden, he's not asking to escape death. The hour, by the way, is different than who he asked for in the garden. In the garden, he's asking about the cup. The cup had to do with the extent of his spiritual death. He didn't know when his spiritual death was going to end. If he died physically while he's on the cross and his spiritual death was still going on, where would he have gone? To the lowest shield. And he did not have to go to the lowest shield to procure salvation for us. So this is what he's wanting. So he knows that he can go on the cross. He knows he can suffer. He knows he can die. But he can do all of that to procure your salvation. That's what's necessary. He doesn't have to go to the lowest shield to procure your salvation. He didn't have to do that despite the fact that there are some church creeds that say he descended into hell. I think they pro- I don't think they there's a debate in there whether he went to hell and suffered or whether he went to to what we would just call the upper part of Hades. But Jesus says, I don't ask. The hour, oh, by the way, I didn't finish. The hour that he's asking about here is the fact that, well, how did Jesus end up on the cross? How did he, did he just jump up there on, on the cross by himself? Some what? He was nailed to a cross. Who nailed him? Some, some Roman soldiers, that's right. Are they more powerful than God? No. No. So what did he have to do? He had to let them do that. And that's part of what the hour was. He had to let those people judge him. He had to let those people take him. He had to let those people beat him. He had to let those people nail him to the cross. So that's the hour. It was for, for, those, for him to let those people do that. Now let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 26. By the way, it says his, tro- his soul is troubled there. Why, why was his soul troubled? Because he, he's going to get hurt. And you think he was looking forward to, oh, I get to get hurt now. They're going to whip me and they're going to they're gonna put a crown of thorns and they're going to beat me and smack me and they're going to put me... Do you think that was something that he was all excited about? Yeah. No. Is that why he came? No. Yeah, he did come for that reason. He did come for that. 
So he says, that's why I'm not going to ask to escape that. But it's not that his soul was excited about it. So in his soul, where he was going to feel all this pain, no, he, he wasn't excited about that. It was trouble. But uh, Matthew chapter 26, look with me in verse 38. <clears throat> and here in, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, it says in verse 36, Then Jesus came with them, that is with all the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two, dis two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So as this hour, as this time is nearing and what he's going to endure, it's causing such anguish, such pain to him that in his soul, where he's feeling stuff, he's feeling a lot of fear. <laughs> Do you think you'd be afraid if you knew that you were going to have to go someplace and some people were going to take and beat you up really, really bad? There's no way to get out of it. They were going to take a whip and bend you over something and whip your back. Do you think that'd make your soul afraid? Yeah. Make you pretty upset? Yeah. And so Jesus says, he's, I'm really grieved. and He's having grief, he says, in my in my soul, having grief in his soul in this way. Um, okay, those are the ones that I wanted to hit there. So here, even Jesus had a soul, and even in his soul, he could have things that were hard. He wasn't, he wasn't just this happy-go-lucky person that's always going around going, oh, the cross, the cross is going to be fun. I'm going to secure the salvation of the world. Yippee! No, the cross was, it was hard and it was painful for him uh, to endure. Now I want to take a look at, um, I want to take a look at some passages out of the Old Testament that interestingly are going to tell us that just a few things out of soul and spirit. There's a lot of passages. I'm just trying to grab a, hand, a few here. Um, let's go to Numbers chapter 11. I'm sorry, sometimes it takes me a while to kind of look where I wrote marks of what I'm choosing here. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 6. These are the people of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. They've come out for quite a little while. They've been out for quite a little while. And it says in verse 4, uh, this is the numerical standard. I don't know how your Bibles translate. But the rabble who were among them. The rabble is a word meaning these were non-Israelites, but they were people that had joined the Israelites and came out with them. They had greedy desires. It's actually a form of the word uh, covet. This is Numbers 11.4. Yeah. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Does anybody ever heard Keith Green? We want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Go home and look it up on YouTube, Keith Green. So you want to go back to Egypt? This is Peggy's the one that taught me that or showed that song to me many years ago. But he says in verse. So in other words, they're remembering all this. We had all this great food and we were in Egypt, but now our appetite is gone. And that word appetite in the New American Standard is our soul, and it's not gone. It's our soul is dried up. There's nothing for our eyes but this manna. Remember what they said manna was at the beginning? They were like little cakes that were that were like frosted or glazed with honey. Sounds kind of good to me, but I suppose if that's all you ate, maybe you could kind of get a little, maybe a little bit tired of it. But they ate that for 40 years and God provided it and he provided enough for them to eat every day, enough for every day. But they look at it and they look back with this. So he says, our soul is dried up. And different people react differently. I was talking with uh, my son-in-law the other day and we were saying, he, he's kind of like me. If something really, really is upsetting happened to him, he loses his appetite. There's some people that get upset and they binge eat. That's the way they comfort their soul when they're upset. Some people, I get upset, I lose my appetite. And that's, that's what they're saying here. My soul is dried up. Oh, so tired of this manna. So you're saying this has not happened in a while? <laughs> For me? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
I haven't been upset about much. That's right. No, I mean, I'm eating well. I'm eating well. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to find somebody else to fill in for me Sunday. Is this the kind of stuff that you tell about your past? No. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. Jim Gaffigan's brother has to take some shots at me oh. once in a while when he gets a chance. So. Where did you say? Proverbs 6, verse 30. And for those of you online, the reason I'm saying is that every once in a while in Bible study, Josh will say something that just sounds, it sounds just like Jim, Gaff, Jim Gaffigan. And Peg and I will just bust out laughing. Looks a little bit like him. A little bit. Josh is better, Josh is better looking. So. Okay, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. Is everybody there? Men, notice what he says, do not despise a thief if he steals. Interesting enough, the word thief and steals. Oh, Proverbs 6, verse 30. Proverbs 6, verse 30. It says, do not despise a thief if he steals. And the word steals is simply the verb form of the word thief in the the Hebrew. But it says he does so to satisfy or fill. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not telling them to do this. It's people do not despise Oh, he says they, yes, they don't. But uh, see, mine's added men, but it doesn't actually, there's not a word for man in there. They've, they've added that. It simply, it says, it says, it says they do not despise the thief if he steals. Now for this reason, this is the reason. In other words, if you're stealing because you just shoplift, because you just you just want stuff, he says this person's stealing to satisfy himself when he is hungry, or literally to fill his soul if he is hungry. So if you've got a man that doesn't have enough to eat and he's hungry, and he's doing this to satisfy or fill his soul, why? Because you feel it when you're hungry. I mean, my stomach will wake me up at one in the morning and my wife knows I'll get up at one in the morning and go get something to eat because I can't sleep. I get so hungry at night sometimes. And he says, a person that steals that way. By the way, is there a hero? Is there a very famous literary hero? No, he's not the one I'm thinking of. A very famous literary hero that stole to feed himself. To feed himself and... His family, Jean Valjean, the 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 main antagonist in Les Misérables. Yeah, that's the whole story. It's about about a police officer chasing him that stole bread uh, at that time. And th- think about that. People read that, and who do you, who's the bad guy? The police officer that hunts hunts him down. Jean Valjean. Do we all agree he shouldn't have stole bread? Yeah, but do we all feel sorry for him in the book? Yeah, so everybody feels sympathetic. You take his you take. His side, the whole the whole story. So it's isn't that interesting? Something that you know we have written as literary fiction becomes uh, comes a statement here in the scriptures that actually kind of states, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But he's doing it for his soul because your soul's what feels that. Okay. Um, on the spirit side, turn to Psalm seventy-seven. Psalm. 77. It does tell him that he has to pay it back. Yeah, if he gets busted. So there's no grace here. No, 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 no. Because that is exactly what the cost of the law was. And and the law did that. Why? Well, if you have to pay back sevenfold, you're seriously going to think about whether you want to steal that thing. Yeah. Psalm 77, 6. Psalm 77 and verse 6. It says, I will remember my song in the night. That word song, just as an aside, is the word negaleth, which you have sometimes at the, at the headings in some of your English Bibles, the headings of some of the Psalms, because that's what they were, a song. He says, I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart. And that word meditate means to verbally rehearse it. You're just kind of repeating it over and over. You ever do that when you're thinking about something, you find yourself talking back through it again and again? And then the last part, and my spirit, notice what he says, my spirit searches it diligently. So he's saying as I'm singing a song, and I think this is actually really interesting because it tells us something, even about an Old Testament believer writing this, that sometimes 
Uh, in fact, I can't find this video anymore. I wish I could find it. But there was a video put out by a church in Chicago. And it was about three years ago. Peg and I saw it. And it's two gals. And the one gal goes, oh, you got to come to my church. They've got the best worship music. And they get up and they're singing the song. And, the, and it's, you know, kind of, they start off singing kind of a typical worship song. And next thing you know, it kind of morphs into, they're just saying kind of bizarre words. And pretty soon they're singing Old McDonald. And the girl's going, we're singing Old McDonald. She goes, oh, I know. Isn't it so great? You know, And it, and it was just, the point was, sometimes you can get, they, this church was trying to make this point with this very hilarious video that sometimes you can get so wrapped up in the music, you're not even really paying attention to what you're saying. And, uh, and of course, her friend was the one that was the rational side of this. But David here is telling us, or the writer of this, this psalm, I think importantly, is saying, you know what I do with my spirit when I sing a song? I don't just sing it. I repeat it over and over to think about it. And my spirit searches it out. In other words, with my spirit, I'm trying to think, what is this, what is this saying about God? What am, I, what am I asking for? And if you read the psalms, when you read David's psalms, David writes with a tremendous amount of of uh, feeling, the word I was going to use with pathos, but uh, you get the idea. A lot of, a lot of feeling, a lot of suffering that David writes songs with, and yet David still thinks about what he says uh, in writing those. I found that interesting. So the, with the spirit, he's doing something different than with the soul, where he really feels and might really enjoy the song. The spirit is going through and is tracing it out and thinking about this is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. This is what this is what this is about. Last one, Proverbs eighteen. Proverbs chapter eighteen. In verse fourteen, when you get there, Proverbs eighteen and verse fourteen. And notice what it says here in verse four. And I'm, again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, "The spirit of a man can endure his sickness," and that is. Not what it says. What it says is it's the spirit of man that contains him in his sickness. In other words, when you're going through illness and you're wracked with pain, where are you feeling that? In your soul and your body. Yeah, this is where it's at. How do you, how do you keep yourself in the midst of that? What's, what's the writer of the Proverbs saying? With your spirit. Use your spirit to rationally think about that. I don't know if you do this. You've maybe heard me do this, but regularly when I know that somebody's sick and they're, they're going through something hard, one of the things that I ask God for is that they might be reminded and encouraged with their spirit to remember who he is in the midst of their illness, in the midst of their suffering. I trust you're doing that for, for Randy brothers right now, although right now his suffering seems to be somewhat low. He doesn't seem to be letting on that he's in tremendous amount of pain, except the other day at a bone marrow biopsy. And I, maybe they have come a long ways in those, but from what, yeah, my wife's making a face over there. I don't think so. I just think he, he just had a, such a tremendous attitude going through that. Cause I've heard so many people that have had bone marrow, heard about people having bone marrow biopsies that just said they're so painful. Because they basically got to go down into your bone, and your bone feels. Yeah. So, but a spirit of man is what contains you in in a time of illness or sickness. So he says it's with your spirit that you have to think clearly and rationally about these things. And sometimes that takes other people coming in and helping you think rationally about that by sharing those things to kind of direct your spirit. But I think this is interesting as he writes this here. And there's a lot of these. You can do these on your own. Look up the word soul and spirit in the Old Testament. Go through them. You're going to have some verses you're going to get, but you're going to have some verses you're going to go. I don't get that. But you're going to have enough of them that are that it's going to give you a good picture of this contrast between soul and spirit. Hopefully we've helped you again see this illustrated with these terms about how the soul feels, but the spirit is what takes facts and brings those to bear on the situation so that it, shall we say, levels out the feeling. So that sometimes our balance scales, if we just go by our soul, it's like, whoa, it's way out of whack. And the way we feel, our soul just totally outweighs 
anything that we that we might be trying to think with our spirit. But if we really take biblical truth and we really take what God's doing, it can bring that back into balance. Okay, it can bring that back into balance. Now, we've already talked about a couple of these in, uh, these in the past, but I wanted to come back and revisit one that we hit last week at the end in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. And if you remember, what does Paul say in 1 Peter? What does Paul say? <laughs> what does Peter say in 1 Peter 1 9? What is the last part of your makeup that is saved? Your soul. Your soul is the last part. So this is why your soul is a problem, and that's why Peter brings up the issue of the soul several times in this letter. But he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, I encourage you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So he says, fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. And I, I came across, I don't know why it came up on my, your, my stupid video feed on YouTube. I, does anybody know who Joe Walsh was? Joe Walsh was a guitarist for the Eagles, still is, because the Eagles are back together. But Joe Walsh, way back in the 70s, totally went off the rails, just immersed his life in drugs and alcohol horribly, and just made a mess of his life. And he knew it was ruining his life, but he just, he, he was talking about this, he was just struggling to rationally come to grips with this is what it's, how it's destroying my life. But it's that fact that you become addicted to a thing and your soul wants this. And, and I think that that's a good example because part of one of the works of the flesh is drunkenness. And he says, and things like these. So what are things that are like drunkenness? Addiction to drugs. Or I don't have an addiction to alcohol or addiction to drugs, but I have an addiction to food, especially sweets. I really have to struggle with sweets. I really struggle with sweets. We try not to keep them in the house for the very fact that they would disappear quickly. See, um, and so we can have addictions like this, things that we just feed ourselves with. That's a good example that those are fleshly lusts, and they war against the soul because in my spirit I know, you know what? I don't need that. I don't need that. It's it, and, and I'm and I know personally from myself, I'm going to eat that. I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to lay there and I'm going to have this major remorse that I ate this 800 calorie cookie. <laughs> I think there is such a thing. I think maybe that's 800 calories, the one in Walla Walla. <laughs> or their, their peanut butter chocolate brownie that's about, oh, anyway, that, that kind of stuff. And see, and it sounds appealing. But when you're done, there's this remorse that a person can have going, why did I eat that? I just, I'm, I'm trying to be better. And so that's why, see it, but it, see, it appeals to the soul. It's not appealing here. It's not appealing to your spirit. It's appealing to where I feel, right? Now, having said that, look at this part. It wages war against the soul. Wage war is a verb form of the word to act as a soldier. It's a verb form of the word to act as a soldier. Turn to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. I was talking to my wife about this uh, a couple weeks ago when I was... <coughs> two or three weeks ago, I guess now, when I was working on this, and I couldn't remember the verse. I couldn't remember this verse, but when I went back through this, I found it. So Romans chapter 7, find verse 23 when you get there. Because one of the questions that has come up quite often is, we always say that there's a spirit part of the mind, but is the soul connected to the mind? And I think this is not straightforward, but it's pretty clear. Okay. Romans 7.23. Now we have, in 1 Peter, we have fleshly lusts warring against the soul. Okay. Now notice what he says here in Romans 7.23. But I see a different law or a different principle in my members waging war. Now it's that same verb to act as a soldier. It's just a, it just has the anti preposition attached to it rather than after it. The other one has acts as a soldier anti. This one is anti with the soldiering um, verb here. So it's waging a war then against 
the law of my mind and makes me a prisoner to the law or principle of the sin, referring to the sin nature. So what he's saying here is the flesh and the sin nature are not absolutely synonymous, but they are sort of equal. And so we have the sin nature, we'll just abbreviate it here, and it's warring against the mind. And I, as I was looking at this, because of those two words here, when I was looking at that reading, I was reading through this in Romans 7, and I came across it, I was like, oh, that's like what Peter says over in First Peter. And I looked and I compared, I think this is actually one of those places that indicates that there's a soul aspect of the mind, because you can see that the flesh, the sin nature, they're both acting as a soldier against the soul, against the mind in this way. Okay? They're not... It's not appealing to the spirit part. It's appealing to the soul part of my mind. Everybody follows that? Everybody follows that. Okay. But this is why, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important for people to understand distinctions between soul and spirit. Because we wonder sometimes, why is it that I crave things so badly that aren't good for me? Why do I have this desire to be angry and bite people's heads off? Why do I have this desire to argue all this time? Why do I have this desire to just always be the winner? And I hate it. I don't know, you, ever, you ever known that person that they just, they got to win so bad all the time that it's almost like some people don't like to be their friends around them because you just know they're just going to win. Why do I even try? You know, because they don't know how to. You know, anyway, it's all those things. And people see this, and they, but they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to cope. Because they don't understand why they have this problem over here, even though they know something different over here in the realm of their spirit. Got that? And so this is one of the reasons I think it's really important for us as believers to understand this distinction. Now, the last part of this that I wanted to look at then, just to give you uh, an example, um, how another way that this comes together is to go over to the book of Hebrews. And I think the first night we were looking at this, we just hit right at the very end, this verse in Hebrews 6 and verse 19. And he says at the very end of verse 18 that there is a hope set before us. Now, without going through and developing this in detail, that hope, if you are looking through the book of Hebrews, that hope is your ability to come to God anytime, anywhere, because of who you are in Christ. You never come to God because of who you are. I'm good enough. I've done all the right things today, so God will listen to me. You are able to come to God because of who God sees you are in Christ. And he says this hope, now verse 19, we have as an... Pardon me? 619. That's all right. He says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope which is sure and steadfast and one that is entered within the veil. It's entered within the veil because that hope is because of who Jesus Christ is and our access because he entered inside that veil. How does your ability to come before God at any time, anywhere, how does that anchor your soul? Maybe let's back up and do this. Let's review. Why are the Hebrews having a problem with their soul? Do you remember? Temple. What about the temple? They're just going to the temple and destroyed. Their no, it's not destroyed yet. They're being kept for religious stuff. That's right. They they can't go to the temple anymore. What? Yeah, they kind of want it both ways. They, they, they want to know. And so some of them are actually in the process at this time of withdrawing from church because they want the temple so bad. They miss being able to go to the temple. Um, yeah. They, they, they think that if they don't go to the temple, they can't, they can't access God. That's a, I mean, you and I think that that's silly. Because we go, well, we can talk to God anytime, anywhere. They were raised up. That's right. You go to the priest at the temple. 
and he talks to God for you. And I think I've, I've told you this before, and I did come across this in a couple of authors back oh, five or six years ago or maybe more, because I've wondered about this for a long time. I've wondered, are some of the Psalms that we have, were some of those Psalms written, maybe by David, some of his, were some of those written by people that wanted to take this to the priest and say, you could go in there and say, hey, I, I'm, I'm praying that my, my friend gets better. Could you, could you ask God to help my friend get better? That, that's one thing. But to say, I couldn't sleep last night. And last night, this is what I was, what I was thinking about that I want to say to God. Could you take and read this before God for me? I'm serious. And actually, I came across that in a couple of writers that they, they said, yeah, there's a very good chance that a number of the Psalms were written by different people to actually take up to the temple to, to guarantee that the priest, because you hope he really read, read the whole thing for you, um, that he actually said before God what you wanted to say. Or maybe you stood there and said it to the priest and then he, whatever priestly thing he did on your behalf. Off, what? Yeah. yeah, went up and you offered the offering or he gave, took the offering and offered it on the fire and such. But, okay, so that's what they want. They miss all of this. They don't know that they can just talk to God at any time, anywhere. And so their soul is in pain. Their soul is struggling. They miss all of this, you know. Did I have a good time with my family this last week? I had a wonderful time with my family, but my soul always has mixed emotions because I miss you guys too when I'm gone. So I didn't miss you so much that I came back early, but <laughs> but that doesn't mean that my soul doesn't miss doesn't miss miss all of this, you know. Um, Tim? Yes. So in this verse um, nineteen, um, we know you just said that our, our hope is uh, that we have this access to right. Christ. Okay. And um, I have we have this hope as an anchor for our. Um, what is what is this that going back to exactly? Where I, I was looking back through there, is it is it like all the previous chapters or or just? Oh, well, I when it, it says this hope. Yeah, it's hope. it's the hope that it's the hope that if you go back in the context, it's it's the promise that you got at the end of chapter two, that you have a high priest that is sympathetic and he's not going to stand there and go, yeah, 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 blah, 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 get on with it. You know, He's actually going to listen and he cares. So that's at the end of chapter two? That's at the very end of chapter two. You have the same thing about that priest in chapter four, but you also have in chapter four that there's a rest. And the significance of that rest is you don't have to perform well to have access to God. So you come to a throne of grace, not a throne of merit or works. And that, see, those are the things that comprise our hope, is that Jesus Christ is the hope because he is our access to the Father. So he's our great high priest. He's the one that gives us the ability to come to God anytime, anywhere. And we come on the basis of him, not on the basis of our works. So it's a throne of grace. See, In fact, in the first part of chapter 6, he says, he even says, we'll be carried on to maturity. Let go, let go of the nursery toys. That's not bad, that's a bad way, but that's what he calls them, the ABCs. Let go of the ABCs and you'll be carried on to maturity. But some Christians, they just want to say, I got the basics, that's enough, isn't it? Isn't just a, the basics enough? No, he wants to carry on to maturity. And I'm glad I'm still not in the nursery school because there's stuff that I went through way back then. I wouldn't want to be still be going through that. But it's seeing the great things that God's done in my life in the many years since as God continues to grow me. Uh, all I can think of is if God's got another 10 or 20 years for me, what are many other things he's got in store for me in growing and appreciating that? So I would say that's, does that answer that question well enough for you? Okay, so it's, it's the hope of coming to him because we have a great high priest. That's the hope in the context that he's building for. Okay. <clears throat> Any other questions? Now, with that then, how does that hope anchor the soul? So your soul wants all this stuff. How does your ability to come before him, how does that anchor your soul? 
And where are you going to use that anchor? What, you, what part of you is going to relate to that anchor? Spirit. Your spirit. Because can you sense your access to God? Can you feel it? You know what heaven smells like? Jerry Larson used to say, I'm sniffing heaven, right? But we're not really, you know, we know, we all know that was a metaphor that he's using, but you can't smell it. I, do I know what it sounds like up there in heaven? No. In fact, Paul says, I heard it, but there's no way you can put it into words down here. Anybody tells to tell you they have, they're making something up because Paul says you can't do it. It's not, it's not only not possible to put it into words, it's not legal to put it into words. God won't let you, see? So, I don't know what it sounds like. What does it look like? Yeah, don't know. So with my spirit, I have to relate to the fact I have this access because the son sat down at the right end of the father. What does that look like? I don't know. All I know is it was so bright that for, for Stephen to see him, he had to step out from the right hand of God so that Stephen could see him distinctly, see the son distinctly from the father. Because <laughs> together, it's just brightness in some sense. That's the best we could tell you. And all of that with our spirit then, with these facts, we anchor our soul when we're going through hard decisions, making decisions that are for the welfare of the body of Christ and your welfare, such as sticking with church rather than throwing it in on church and going hunting for answer. I mean, I mean, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just joking. We've got, we've got people that are going antelope hunting. So I was just giving them a hard time. No, that's on a serious note, on a very serious note. That was just a joke. Um, it's if you gave up on this, if you just said, I, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this anymore. You know, uh, or this is too hard. Because I think that's really the question with the Hebrews. This is too hard to do this because I've got something else that is far more important to me. That is going back to this. These people that are going hunting. If they said, we're not going to church anymore because we're going to hunt every weekend. And every time the church gets together, we're devoting our lives 100% to hunting. Probably would actually get boring after a while. Wouldn't it, if that's, maybe, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> Josh will always tell you if you do if you do something you like and it becomes a job then it be, then it loses some of its luster, but 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 no on a, on a very serious note it's it's if we chose at a point to sacrifice this being together with believers because there was something else that we needed or we thought we needed more and we don't need it so it anchors our soul so that rather than having to do this thing that makes our soul feel comfortable we actually can do what God wants in this case. Well, that would be it. the other thing is that that's usually the sin nature deceiving anyway because you, you, your soul's not comfortable. No. You start doing that and then it doesn't bring happiness. Yeah. And in fact, and I think I've said this before, but you get to chapter 10, he says, if you sin willfully, there only remains an expectation of judgment and a fiery zeal to consume those who are about to be enemies. And I think that's the individual. They're consumed at the fiery zeal. So let's say you do the right thing. I choose to do the wrong thing. All of a sudden now you're my enemy, even though you're not on my case about it. And all of a sudden I'm on you. I'm on you about this. And I'm like, ah, why are you still going to church all the time? You don't need to do that. Right. <clears throat> See, I shouldn't yell. I messed my voice up. Probably got that <clears throat> for cracking jokes at people's expense. <laughs> okay. And there we go. Um, I, I had a couple other verses here on this, but I think that that's I think that that's sufficient. Hopefully, as we've gone over this the last few weeks. Um, Maybe you've got to, again, maybe encourage you a little bit to think about what Paul means when he talks about that God's going to um, preserve their whole, the entirety of them, their whole spirit, the soul, and the body, and to appreciate what that all means for us on a very practical level. Um, because our, our soul feels certain ways, and we have this conflict between our soul feeling this way, even though I know it's like this, and why? Because this soul's not saved yet. And it still is subjective to things down here that are uncomfortable or things that are really pleasant, whatever they are, that's extreme. 
And our spirit over here is this thing that's supposed to balance that, right? Keep that balanced out. The last verse of Hebrews 10. We're not those that draw back. We're those that possess the soul. We can possess or take control of the soul. Our Bible says saving the soul. It's not saving. We possess it rather than it possessing us. Okay? So, you ever taken a really big dog for a walk? A really big dog? And that it's, Is the dog taking you for a walk or are you taking the dog for a walk? You know? No. <laughs> what? The dog's taking you for a drag. Yes, that's right. Um, so, any comments or questions to add here at the end? Yes. Yeah, I was just thinking about perhaps this is the struggle with some Christians too are that are stuck in legalism, right? Or that feel guilt and think that they have to do some you know, work. And that could be because that that could be driven by their soul too. Guilt. Yes. And maybe they're, and so thus they're not maturing. They're letting the soul govern their spirit. Yeah. Could everybody kind of hear that a little bit? Because I can hear it real well up here. So that is exactly what's going on in Hebrews. You have believers that haven't really matured. That's why he says you need to, first part of chapter six, leave behind the ABCs and be carried to maturity. They need that. And there is a bit of legalism because there's, they still have in their mind all these things they have to do to be good enough to come to God. It's a good observation. Yes. Thank you, Joe. Anybody else? That same point was not thoroughly as thoroughly made as you made tonight, but whereas Hebrew makes the balance paragraph I studied last night that well, and it, it wasn't necessarily about the Christian maturing, but the idea that we come to God on, not on our works. You know, it's like, and I, as Christians, we didn't even impress them or a girl or works or whatever. You know, it's a good, good thought for the kids to see, hey, regardless of what my life looked like, he, he's done it all. He's made it possible. And same thing as we're Christians, he's done it all. He's made it possible. He can anchor our soul. He's knit with our spirit.